Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. In the 21st episode, I spoke with Dave Peterson, who is a category designer. You might ask yourself, what does that even mean? And that's exactly what I've tried to figure out in this podcast episode. And we will learn how companies such as Salesforce, Apple, Tesla, and Airbnb, and others benefit from being category kings and from this process category design. So Dave is a perfect person to talk about because he's a co-founder and partner at Play Bigger Advisors, which is a consulting firm that actually coined this term and is now advising companies how to create and own new categories of products. They recently also published a book, which is also called Play Bigger. And in this book, they explain the whole uh, process of category design in much greater detail. And in this episode, we basically covered the definition of category and category design. We um, try to explain why it makes sense to be a category kink. Uh, and uh, hint, basically, category kinks capture more than 70% of economic benefits in an industry. So it really makes sense to know something about categories. And lastly, we looked at different examples uh, of how companies became category kings, such as Salesforce, Tesla, Qualtrics, etc. So we will see how they've done it and then through that learn how we can also uh, apply these to our projects. So that's all in the intro and now enjoy this conversation with Dave Peterson. Cool. So first of all, Dave, thanks a lot for taking the time. Um, I really appreciate it. I read your book recently, Play Bigger, and it had a really big impact on me. Um, but I think it's best if you just try to uh, kick things off with uh, one really interesting case study, which kind of explains what category design is and what the whole book is about. So um, maybe to hand it over to you, Dave, like, what is category design and maybe how does this show in the Salesforce example? Oh, thanks. Thanks. And uh, thank you for uh, having me. And uh, Pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So category design um, is a what we consider a business discipline for bringing the notion of controlling and designing your category into your overall scope of your business strategy and execution. And so if you took a look at the book, there's sort of this uh, very simple diagram that has a lot of power behind it. We call it the magic triangle. And we believe that mm -hmm. every company, large and small, uh, from the earliest stages of uh, the entrepreneur's insight and idea to you know, late stage companies going public, have the ability to combine their efforts around the company design, the product design, and the category design. And it's quite surprising how many companies actually don't believe they have control over their category or have the ability to devise a strategy to design and define their own categories. And uh, we spent a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of our careers, a lot of last, at least last my 25 years, helping shed light on how this is absolutely a fundamental piece of business that can really have huge economic impact. Mm. What is category though? So a, a category, um, you know, in its most simple uh, description, and it's kind of fun, I was, uh, I was uh, this is no exaggeration, I was um, um, this last summer in 2018, we're early into 2019 now, 
I was driving my daughter back and forth from um, writing camp. And she asked me the same question. And, 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 uh, <laughs> I, and I, I always thought if you could explain what you do to your parents or your children, you're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to explain to her that a category is sort of a container for a problem, as in, you know, we have a lot of problems in our lives and we always seek an answer for those problems. And the category is the first place we go. And the example I gave her is we were driving down the road and we're looking at different uh, vehicles on the road with us. And in particular, she was doing a riding camp. And I said, so I said, take a look at that uh, vehicle in front of us. What is it? And she said, well, it's a pickup truck. And I said, well, mm-hmm. what does, what's the job of a pickup truck? What problem does it solve? She said, oh, it, it, you know, it moves horse trailers back and forth. And I said, okay, well, that's, it has four wheels. It's a vehicle, but the category that it is in is, is a pickup truck because it has a, it's designed to solve a specific problem. Mm-hmm. And then I looked a, a little further down the road and I said, well, what is that car? And she's like, well, that's a Tesla. And I said, well, it's driving down the same road as the pickup truck but it's in a different category. It's a, you know, highly advanced uh, electric vehicle, right? And it's solving a different problem, which is, you know, helping people look really cool here in the California and also <laughs> um, helping people, uh, you know, do less damage to the economy. And, and I am not joking. And I, I think people think I'm kidding about this. Literally a white van pulled up in front of us. And I said, okay, well, what is that? And she said, that's a problem dad you know you never get involved with a white van and i said that's right i said when you see a white van that category is called the police and so so ultimately a category is a place that you go in your head to solve a problem uh just to give a more uh uh, you know all kidding aside a great example to see where categories kind of come to life are grocery stores and Mm -hmm. so if you walk down any aisle of any grocery store, you see baking goods, you see organic foods, you see the meat and cheese and poultry, you see all the different categories of foods that people need to go to to solve their problem. Maybe they have a, a list of things that they needed to go pick up for Thanksgiving dinner or a party. Uh, the Super Bowl is going to be coming up in the United States here pretty soon, so there'll be Super Bowl parties, and you need to know where to go. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, if a grocery store, I always say, was arranged by products in alphabetical order, you wouldn't ever know how to sort of sort through the different uh, uh, products to get to the problem that you need to solve, which is, you know, cooking a big Super Bowl or a dinner or a Thanksgiving dinner for your family. And so these categories are these natural, intuitive, kind of irrational containers that people create in their heads as a starting point for how to solve their problem. And then inside these categories are products, right? And companies. And, uh, but people go to the category first before they get to the product. Mm. Perfect. So you, yeah, that was a great definition. So now that we have like a common ground, what would you say is the idea of category design? Is it about creating new categories, owning categories? You know, what is the value of category design? I think at a at, at the most fundamental uh, level, and again, going back to that magic triangle, we see companies, again, of all sizes, spend, you know, all day, every day, it's called work, you know, designing a great company, right? And they use, they use different methodologies to, you know, like lean startup. If you're an early stage company, there's best practices for building a company, building your board, designing the kind of people you want to hire, the culture. There's all these tried and true efforts that people believe are high of high value for designing a company. And those things have been in place and people don't think about it much. They just, they just do that. And then from a product side, 
you know, uh, many of the folks that would be probably listening in on this podcast can appreciate this. Companies like IDEO have spent and designed a methodology for designing products. And mm -hmm. you just don't build a product. You think about the problem the product solves, and then you think about a way to design it in a way that's intuitively going to solve that problem via the product itself. And the categories are no different. Um, a lot of companies find themselves kind of, I always say, outsourcing the category definitions to the uh, third-party people in the industry, like the Gartner groups or IDC or Forrester or, you know, the, the bloggers or the, or the media. And they let the world tell, position them in the categories. And we believe that companies have a right, and actually there's real economic implications for taking control and letting the world know what category they're in. And ultimately, um, the reason it's important because, you know, no product or company has any value unless it solves a problem. And the category is a mechanism for helping the world understand what the big problem is. And therefore, the world can accept what category uh, solves that problem and then the companies within it that they'll go to to uh, take whatever action is appropriate. Um, the example I, was, I like to give a lot is um, what happened in the ride sharing industry. Uh, if you look at Uber and Lyft, these things are pretty common now, right? We don't think much about looking at our phone and, 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 and pulling up an Uber or a Lyft. That's pretty much like breathing air today. But if you think about it, if you rewound the clock uh, less than 10 years, I always joke, you know, we were trained as children never to get in a car with a stranger, right? And mm -hmm. if a stranger pulled up, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick on Lyft a little bit. If a college student pulled up in front of your house with a pink mustache attached to their Prius and asked you and your family to get in and they were going to give you a ride to the airport, you would probably call the police, right? I mean, <laughs> your, your mindset as a consumer was not conditioned to believe that that's okay. But when Uber in particular led the charge and helped people understand that there was a problem called the, the, this huge gap in the transportation sector, specifically with taxi cabs. Uh, that was dangerous for people. There was no way to reliably get from point A to point B. Um, there was a lot of cars sitting around doing nothing. And they helped condition, in this case, the world to understand that it's okay to look for a different answer besides a taxi cab or a uh, very expensive uh, you know, sedan and a car service to get you and your family uh, uh, around town or uh, to the airport and back. And that sort of conditioning created the category of ride sharing. Mm -hmm. And now that the ride sharing category is there, and no, notice I didn't say Ubering or lifting, I said ride sharing. Now that that category exists, then it's perfectly acceptable for people to say, okay, well, uh, instead of, uh, you know, if I need to get to the airport, let me, let me pull up my Uber app or Lyft app. And I don't care who the driver is. I don't care to a certain degree, what kind of car I'm getting into, which is very strange, right? These are the things that we've been, you know, trained as, as children to be aware of, but uh, we find that acceptable and that's the power of the category. And, mm -hmm. and that's why it's important for companies to, you know, take a hold of the definition of that, uh, of that category, because uh, often we've all seen products and in, in companies that try to solve problems that people didn't have, or people didn't know they have, and those companies don't do so well. And the more effort you put into educating the world about the problem, the more likely they'll accept uh, the category of the answer as well as the uh, companies inside that category that can, they'll, they'll rely upon to solve the problem.
But why is that even important, right? Why would I, as a designer or a founder, even be thinking about the category I'm playing in? You know, what is the business or economical value of thinking about categories? Well, I think if um, if you don't, you risk kind of breaking the golden rule, right? Um, in the Silicon Valley for the longest time, and I can pick on, uh, you know, this is no, no criticism. I think it was a pretty well-known uh, um, approach was the sort of, if you build it, they will come mentality, mm-hmm. where you build a product and eventually people will figure out that they like it. And at the highest level, life's too short to leave that much chance into all that hard work. And if you think about all the product designers in the world, think about how much effort goes in the creative effort, the scoping, the design, the, the testing, all of the heart, all of the head, all the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into building these great products. And a lot of these products are put out into the market and people don't know what to do with them, right? These and they sort of leave it to chance. And if people don't know what category uh, uh, that this product fits in, often these products get ignored. Um, one of the examples we give in the book is uh, the Segway. And um, if you're not familiar with the Segway, it's those that strange transportation device. <laughs> yeah. It's not a bicycle. It's not a car. It's not a motorcycle. It's not a scooter. And there was a fairly large effort put behind the Segway to create this new sort of form of transportation. But there's no category for it. There's no place to park it. There was no place to sort of adopt it into the mainstream. Nobody even knew why I should get on one. And what happened? <laughs> right? That product in the entire industry is has been sort of relegated out to, you know, mall security officers and tourists uh, <laughs> and, exactly. and tourist <laughs> tours in San Francisco. And and that's why it's important because products can get orphaned without a category. And it happens mm. all the time. And so can companies. Companies can get orphaned without a category too. And uh, and that's why I we often meet these incredibly brilliant founders, you know, just inc- people smarter than I would ever, you know, hope to be in a room with. And, and uh, they get kind of stuck on, I got a great idea for a product or I got a great idea for a company. And they forget that people need to understand the category in order to make the company and the product super relevant. Um, the, the other thing we joke about often, you run into it in the tech sector, kind of in the uh, in the business-to-business world uh, specifically, people uh, joke about uh, all you need to do in business is you make shit, you, you sell shit, and everything else is bullshit, right? And, <laughs> and, uh, and so there was sort of that product-first mentality, specifically in the tech sector, that really led to a lot of wasted venture capital, a lot of wasted effort. Uh, on, on, on people and, and leadership teams. And we believe that you could save yourself a lot of, uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and, op- and more importantly, increase your odds of success if you bring category into the equation. It sounds a lot like a thought leadership in a certain industry where you basically take a certain problem and try to promote a new category of product. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and I think um, if you hang around um, the the zealots of category design very very long, uh, in particular uh, myself or my partner Al, um, we always joke a lot. And it was a famous quote that was sort of a meme that got taken over by uh, uh, Captain Jack Sparrow, <laughs> uh, 
or Johnny Depp, where, where the, the saying is, the problem is not the problem. The problem is the attitude about the problem. And uh, we believe category design is all about the problem first. And um, one of the best examples uh, that we give in the enterprise space is what Mark Benioff did with uh, Salesforce.com. Mm-hmm. In particular, um, and he reminds me, if you read the book, there's this great story about Clarence Birdseye and how Clarence Birdseye had this insight about how they were you know, flesh-freezing fish in Alaska, or I'm sorry, in northern Canada. And that led to his idea about flesh-freezing vegetables in the 1920s. And then if you flash-freeze vegetables, you can therefore get them out to the public and thaw them out and eat them fresh and, 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 and basically have a good alternative to getting fresh vegetables um, besides eating them out of a can. And that was a huge long road. And I think a lot of people appreciated that, that, that example, but a lot of people may have put into the, uh, into their mindset, oh, well, you know, that was in the 1920s. Things don't operate like that today. And if you look at what Mark Benioff had to do, you know, when he came out with his uh, product, it was a Salesforce automation product. And it was the same product that existed in many, many other uh, SFA products like Siebel Systems, Brock, you name it. In fact, every single CRM company, the on-premise CRM company had a Salesforce automation system. And if Mark Benioff would have came out and just been product first and said, hey, I got a brand new SFA tool, come and get it, he would have failed. But instead, he changed the problem. And the problem wasn't having a better product. He attacked the problem that software was impossible to consume or implement because of the problem with what he declared on-premise software. And on-premise software was a term that he created to bucket the problem that of these client server implementations and the massive failure rates of how hard it was to get a, you know, a Siebel systems, for instance, implemented. And he attacked not the product, but the problem of consuming software and how hard it was. And then he had to literally, no different than Clarence Birds, I had to go out there and convince the world that you could consume software in a completely different way through something called an application service provider, which is what we now call the cloud. But this was a huge shift in 2003. It wasn't that long ago. It was not that long ago where people were like, what are you talking about? Software is implemented on-premise, and it was purchased in perpetual licenses. So if you wanted to buy a huge implementation of Siebel Systems, you had to spend $25 bucks, and you had to hire a team of Accenture consultants to implement it. And Mark Benioff came out and said, no, you can buy, consume software by the month, and you can... And you can basically have it serviced to you like a utility. And that ultimately led to how we all look at, you know, SaaS companies, which is the business model, and cloud, which is the delivery model. And uh, he spent all of his crazy years out there trying to convince Wall Street on how to look at the business model and how to look at things like deferred revenue and how perpetual licenses weren't the indicator of success. But all these things now that are commonplace like MRR and ARR are mm-hmm. the things you should look for for success in companies. And he had to forge all these new paths and he attacked the problem of no software for a decade plus. And uh, that I don't even remember him ever talking about Salesforce automation or then eventually CRM. He just talked about the power of the cloud and why it was so important to move out of this old world of on-premise software to this new world of now cloud. And there is a very tall building in San Francisco that marks his 
his uh, dent in the universe, and, and I'm sure Mark Benioff is not done by any means, but uh, he has really proven the power of a category. The cloud category is what carried Salesforce, the company, and all their products uh, through that long journey. And if he didn't focus on the category and the products, um, I couldn't tell you that he was going to fail because, I mean, he's a very successful guy. But to the degree, um, that was the way that he moved the entire CRM industry into a completely new category of cloud software. Yeah, like honestly, reading the book, uh, this Salesforce example was one of the really the most inspiring examples of this category design uh, I've heard. And it kind of was the aha moment for me. And I'm realizing that basically, if you find an interesting or create an interesting category, and basically you don't need to promote your product anymore because you can start promoting the category. And that marketing or uh, promotion is much more natural, right? Because you're more talking about the impact, which kind of reminds me of Tesla today. Because a lot of what Elon is talking about is not by Tesla, but it's the the internal combustion engine cars are just not good for environment. But then if you look at alternative, Tesla is kind of the main thing. So he's kind of doing the marketing for, for Tesla by promoting the category. And um, I think a lot of the um, interesting stuff about category design is in the how, right? How do you do it? And uh, also this example you gave in the book about Salesforce and how uh, the founder of Salesforce declared a war on software is really interesting. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? So how he decided to, uh, how he even declared a war and then basically overthrew the on-premise software with the cloud? Sure, sure. And uh, um, the, we were we have a really great um uh, business partner in the venture community that uh, gave us this quote. He said, you know, the, the non-consensus become consensus overnight, right? Uh, what's, what's strange today is normal tomorrow. And, and he had to, you know, Mark Benioff and his crew at Salesforce went on this just constant you know, attack. Um, and at the time, you know, we call it a lightning strike. That's not what they called it, but to the degree you know, category design is all about reconditioning the mindset, playing off these biases that we all have in our head about what's right, what's wrong, anchoring problems, getting people to move in herds towards a new, new direction. And they literally went to war on software and they had that famous no software um, logo yeah. and they put it everywhere, right? And it seems strange, right? Think about it. They were a software company. Yeah. It was software. But they declared a war on on premise, and even to the degree, uh, if you've ever been in San Francisco during mm-hmm. a Dreamforce conference, um, you know that who the agenda setter is in the enterprise software space. It is Salesforce. One hundred and fifty thousand people like come. You know, like it's like a pilgrimage, and people come here and want to. I don't know why, but they want to like fight for, you know, $600 hotel rooms. They want to scrap around trying to find a single reservation in a restaurant in San Francisco. is totally sold out. 100 miles surrounding area of San Francisco. You can't even get into a Motel 6 or a Holiday Inn for less than 400 bucks. Why? Because everybody wants to come and listen to the future of the technology industry from Mark Benioff and his uh, army at Salesforce. And it took them 
years and years and years using this sort of lightning strike mentality to condition the world about where the problem was and where the future was. And then when you do that correctly, uh, they call it the anchoring effect. If you can do a good job framing a problem in people's heads, people will just give you by default the benefit of the doubt that you have the answer to the problem. And they did these attack campaigns. I know at one point in time, I think they surrounded Oracle World. I might be getting this wrong, but I believe they literally did a protest <laughs> around all these on-premise providers to protest them in the streets with, you know, and they made it a, you know, again, his initially people were sort of laughing at them and, and laughing at Mark Benioff saying, oh, you guys crazy. And all of a sudden, you know, crazy goes, turns into brilliant overnight. Um, I think uh, to your point, um, uh, mentioning Elon Musk, you have to mention him because uh, he is not only a pioneer in technologies, but he is out there solving problems. And there's no question he is a problem solver first and a technology uh, technologist second, right? He he broke the back of an industry that did not want autonomous or electric vehicles on the streets, right? That, that that's a lot of you know <laughs> big industries from uh, you know oil to manufacturers that did not want to see Tesla succeed, mm. and he had to convince the world that the world doesn't have to run on carbureted vehicles anymore. And the world can start to experience something completely different and, and feel good about being in their vehicles, getting from point A to point B. And that not only did he have to do that for Tesla, but he's also doing that for SpaceX and, 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 and uh, the Hyperloop. And if you think about it, um, you know, think about what you hear in the news, right? You see these rocket launches, for instance, right? And you see his car floating around in space. That could seem kind of wacky if you didn't have context, right? It's like, why is there a car? Why is there a Tesla in space now? Or why do these rocket launches matter? Well, what what uh, Musk did, which is part of category design, he published his blueprint. And you can Google this. You can look it up and look up Elon Musk's presentation about how we're going to get to Mars and back. It's fascinating. It, it, and literally, he goes into such great detail about the type of, uh, of uh, space travel uh, experience you're going to have, how cozy the the, the the hangout space is. He said, you know, we're going to be in the in the in the spaceship for quite some time, so it needs to be fun. We have to be entertained. We can't be bored. And he literally takes you on his journey. And there's this great presentation. You got to read it and, and 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 watch it. And you just want to be there, right? And then he does interviews and say, I will be the you know one of the first crews, and maybe we'll all die, but I'm going to get there, and I'm going to die trying. And what he did is we call this blueprinting the future of the category. He framed the problem and he also took us on this journey and shared with us what things are going to be like. And because he did that, every single time he take, you know, lands one of his rockets back on the barge, we celebrate with him. He enlisted us. It made it okay to root for him, right? And on the mission to Mars and back. Whether or not it ever happens or not doesn't matter. And that's what category designers do. They don't just say, hey, look at my great rocket or look at my great technology. They explain to you why it matters. And that's where the problem comes into place. If the problem is real and people say, yeah, I want that problem to be fixed. And we always said there's two types of problems. Problems people know they have but didn't believe that there was a different answer, right? So they just live with taxi cabs, right? Or 
problems that you don't know you have. But as soon as you hear the problem, you realize, wow, there's this whole new world of experience that I can, uh, that I can uh, uh, take, bring into my life. Um, that example, uh, we, we talk about Airbnb a lot in the book because they were a classic company of a, pro- a company who introduced a problem that people did not know existed, right? There wasn't a hotel crisis uh, when Airbnb came out. People weren't complaining that there's not enough places to stay. But what they did say is, hey, if you're going to travel to Paris, don't stay there, live there. And you can go in and experience Paris and New York and all these great places by living there in somebody's home. And they created a problem that people didn't know they have, which is hotels are limited. And you could experience something completely different if you, if you chose to look up a place to stay in Airbnb. And that whole thing wrote itself, right? I don't have to tell the history of how successful that has been. And it's been pretty amazing, though. But if they didn't lead with the problem first and they didn't educate us that that's okay, then we would be sitting here feeling weird about using somebody else's shampoo in their house, right? I mean, again, it's like that Uber thing. It's weird, right? You're going into somebody's home. You're using their kitchen. You're, 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 you're in their bathroom. You're using their products. And for some reason, that's okay now. And the reason it's okay is because the category exists, right? <laughs> the category exists where this sort of private hospitality is an okay thing to do. And now it's okay to literally go into somebody else's house and stay there while you're on vacation. And uh, that, that's a, that, you know, these are why, you know, the sort of problem first mentality for category design is so important. Mm-hmm. So you just gave us a few examples of category kinks which is another concept you discuss in the book, right? It's basically the company who is owning, who is winning the, the category. Could you quickly talk about the importance of being a category king? Uh, why should we try and strive to be category kings? And then also maybe how do you become a category king? Do you really have sure. to create a category or can you own a category that's already out there? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would love to because there's definitely some um, clear economic benefits that were uh, that we mapped out in our research. And I'll give you an example of a company that just executed this whole whole notion of why it matters to be the category leader in a in an arguably pitch perfect way. Um, so the category economics, when we we were uh, uh, doing the research for the book. We probably interviewed 150 or more CEOs, entrepreneurs to really get the qualitative uh, stories right, hear what exactly what happened and when it happened to, and, and, and connect all those dots and, and show that all these people kind of walk down a common path. And we also did a ton of work to get some quantitative research to basically test the theory about category economics. And it turns out these category kings um, – are in a winner-take-all market or winner-take-all business. Said another way, category kings take 76% of the economics of the category over time. 76%. And that is why there is no second-place company to Facebook. There is no second-place company to, uh, I mean, you could argue Lyft is second-place to um, Uber, but Mm -hmm. Uber is worth 10x, 15x more than uh, Lyft. And so the 76% of the economics, the category economics, go to the winner of the category. 
And that, if that's not worth playing for, I don't know what is. Mm. And if you're in a company and you're not trying to win at all, then I don't even know. I mean, what, working in a startup is hard work. I've done it hand, you know, over a half a dozen times. And you, if you are not striving to be the leader, the category king, the category queen, the category leader, whatever you want to call it nowadays, then I, you're playing for not even like a quarter of the deck of economics. And you're going to work just as hard as the company who's going for the leadership position. And so that's a true fact. And, um, and it's, it, it's just startling to see how many companies believe there's room for more than one leader in the space. And it's just proven over and over again. There's, you know, maybe with a few exceptions, you know, all the economics go to the winner. And that's why these sort of category leaders matter and, and going for the win matters. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a good recent example of that is this company uh, um, it's called Qualtrics. They're based out of uh, Provo, Utah. And uh, they, they're an amazing company. Um, again, you can kind of look up the news. They recently um, announced an acquisition from SAP for uh, $8 billion. And when Qualtrics, if you rewind the clock, you know, barely two years ago, maybe three, uh, they were sort of in a three-horse race. Um, it was Qualtrics, who was the leading company for what they would at the time call market research or market insights. And if you were in the academic world, you were using Qualtrics to do advanced research and, uh, and uh, uh, information gathering for whatever uh, uh, research project you were going to be working on where you need to gather feedback from large masses of people, analyze that feedback and and, and, and build build uh, whatever your thesis or whatever uh, uh, business case that you were working on. And they were the truly the leaders of that space, second second to nobody. Uh, and Qualtrics at that time, and again, you have to rewind it almost uh, more than 24 months ago, they were also sitting in the business world next to a company called SurveyMonkey. And it's kind of a silly name if you, haven't, if you don't know who they are, but what SurveyMonkey did was automate surveys. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know most companies who ever used them, if they had to do an employee survey or something like that, a real quick survey, it was a free tool. I think they might charge for it now. And uh, it was, uh, but it was, again, a way to solicit feedback from people and automate the analysis of that feedback and do something with it. And then there was another company out there, it was called Medallia. And Medallia was a company that did uh, something called customer experience. And that was a new sort of discipline that was emerging around companies starting to take the reins on how they, you know, manage the experience of their customers to try to like reduce all that, you know, the customer flack and churn and things like that. And, and these three companies were sort of all solving different problems, but they were all sort of combined into a similar category and they were all worth about uh i believe their market caps were all dancing around a billion dollars a piece so very successful and then what qualtrics did and again you could kind of almost just go online and and google their journey but they started to take control of a different agenda and particularly start to evangelize a different problem which is this giant experience gap uh, that companies all have. And this experience gap exists with customers. 
right? There's a big distance between what the CEO thinks a customer is experiencing and what that customer is actually experiencing. That's a gap. There's an experience gap between uh, CEO and executive teams with their employees, right? So most exec teams and CEOs believe their employees uh, are, are experiencing one thing where there's generally a gap where they're experiencing something else. The same thing, uh, you know, in particular for your for the designers involved with products, same thing. There's an experience gap with products. There's an assumption for how uh, people are enjoying or experiencing the product and what the product is actually delivering as far as an experience. And there's also experience gap around brands and how people believe their brand is being received and what people actually think about this uh, brand. And, and the list goes on and on. And what Qualtrics did is they realized they were sitting on this giant uh, fountain of, um, of a, a experience knowledge uh, based off all the market research that was uh, conducted on their platform. And they started to evolve into this um, notion that this experience gap is almost like the on-premise software of, of Salesforce uh, was a huge, giant business problem, material in nature. And they took that problem to market and they then came out and defined a category called experience management, which solved that problem. And they did all the work. That was a, that was a huge head shift, though, where people, you know, looked at like these, you know, these kind of um, I call it customer experiences or employee experiences in these kind of siloed efforts. But what Qualtrics did is combine all that together. They educated the world that there's this experience gap. They also came out with this notion that there was some missing data, which uh, all companies had operational data. And that operational data you can get out of your ERP systems, your CRM systems, and it can always tell you basically what happened, right? Everybody knows what happened, right? You can see it in the rearview mirror all day long. But nobody knew why it was happening. Mm -hmm. And so what Qualtrics did is help people understand that if you could get to the why it's happening and, and correlate that with what was happening, you might have a material advantage in business. And that's where they basically pioneered this uh, experience management category. And then fast forward two years uh, prior to the SAP news, uh, they were walking down the, uh, the, the IPO uh, roadshow and everybody, in fact, I believe the Sunday they announced the acquisition, that week they were going to uh, go, uh, go with their public offering. And they were having great success for a whole bunch of levels. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the uh, news came out that SAP acquired them for $8 billion. And I haven't checked the, the, the stock price of SurveyMonkey today, nor do I know the valuation of Medallia. But when we wanted to talk about the economics of category design, Qualtrics was going neck and neck with those two other companies, a billion dollars apiece, and argue two, two and a half years later, they're worth $8 billion. And I believe those other companies are still worth about a billion apiece. And that's still a good day in most people's worlds. Mm -hmm. But let's just say that's a pretty shining example of probably the most modern day Salesforce example that we've seen in the enterprise industry uh, for quite some time. And, uh, you know, it's pretty black and white uh, what they did, how they executed their agenda and ultimately what the outcome was. And, I, and knowing that crew at Qualtrics, they're not even close to done yet. They're going to probably wreak all kinds of, you know, cause all kinds of problems inside the SAP in a good way. I, I, I say that uh, uh, they're going to be continuing their, 
their work to try to help the company close the experience gaps um, across those four areas um, uh, going forward. And that's probably also a very good example of a company that was not a first mover, right? In terms of there were three companies in this space of the, let's say, call it the survey industry. And basically there was no kink, right? So the insight for me and also reading from the book is that um, you don't have to be first in a category to actually be the kink, right? But once there is a kink, it's super hard to to become the second king to basically overthrow that first one, right? Well, the, uh, the notion of, you know, it, if you read the book, there's this whole notion of like category curves too. And this is where it gets a little more, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, a little more nuanced because, you know, at any given point in time, if you look at the mobile industry, for example, um, you know, there's a, there was a day where most of us could remember um, the, uh, you know, when the telephone was just a telephone, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was attached to your wall, and I'm going to age myself here, and it used to have either a dial that you turned or a, uh, a button you pushed to, to make a phone call. And that's the paradigm of the, the telephone category and all the things that kind of came with it for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, this notion of mobility came to play, and your telephone was something, you know, they called it a car phone, and that was a category. And um, that became something that you bolted into um, your car, and again, you were probably considered a very successful person or a business person if you had the luxury of having that. And then, uh, but again, if you notice, like, it's still the same sort of, notion that people are on the phone speaking with each other but the category kind of shifted based off of the need of the problem shifting to i need a mobile phone Mm -hmm. and then this whole notion of mobility kind of came to play and there were companies if if we all remember nokia uh sony erickson there's these companies that i think all of us with our nokia phone if somebody would have said that there's any chance that that phone was going to be irrelevant. They would have laughed you out of the room, right? Mm-hmm. We all lived in a place where that was the epitome of the mobile experience. It worked really well. In fact, I kind of wish I still had a mobile phone, uh, Nokia phone, because they do <laughs> they are great phones. But uh, that was just, again, a curve where they may have uh, perfected the phone experience, but what was going on was the problem was extending because people started to want more um, they wanted to solve more problems with the things they carried around in their pockets. And there was one point in time, I think it was probably in the 90s, where you could walk down the street and see somebody with a Nokia phone on their belt. Uh, it almost looked like a, a, like a military you know, vest, right? And then they had their Blackberry on the other side of their belt. And maybe they had something kind of fancy like a some sort of like a Palm Pilot or something in their hands where they're going to do their graffiti. And they had this whole like quiver of, you know, electronic devices that all did different things. And, and maybe the, even some people were having a, you know, uh, a debate whether or not the Blackberry was a better device than, uh, than, uh, than their, uh, than their, uh, whatever their, their, their smartphones. But then again, th- that's another curve, right? And then eventually, this thing called this iPhone came out into our world and introduced the world to 
a very small computer. And I don't think that, I don't think that the, um, even though I can make a phone call on my iPhone or it's a lot of Android users out there, uh, and it's still called a smartphone. I do believe that that's a new category that is going to, you know, we're just seeing the very beginning of the beginning with, right? And so you have to ask yourself, would the leader, if you were RIM and you were the leader of your product called a BlackBerry, are you willing to sacrifice everything to jump on the next curve, right? Or does it take somebody has nothing to lose mm-hmm. to take on the next problem, right? And so that's kind of the, the, the sacrifice of success in a lot of these category leaders because they get into the situation where they created the category that they're dominating. But the problem is going to – I think Jeff Bezos said it. You know, you have to be careful about success because your success creates a wake of a new problem. And you have to be able to understand what problem is going to come on the back end of the success that you created. What's that saying? Tomorrow's – today's solutions create tomorrow's problems. And so so that kind of curve jumping is part of the – notion of why category design is so important because it's not something you do when you start your company. It's not something that you do every time you change, decide to change your message or your brand. It's something that you do in a conscious effort. So you can be, you know, the company that leads the way over time, like Amazon, you know, versus, you know, going extinct like a blockbuster. Yeah. Like this reminds me of the example of Lightphone. Do you know a light phone? No, no, uh, I'm not familiar. Yeah, that's basically um, like a dumb phone. It's a new category which is fighting against smartphones, you know, because they require so much attention from users. So now this new wave come up with, hey, I don't want to have a phone that pings every five minutes when I get a new notification for email, Instagram, Facebook. I actually want to be detached from this. So they created this whole new category of phones where you have to be conscious. So there is no email um, client, no uh, social media, etc. And this is kind of what you were saying, right? So this new success created this new problem, and now there's a new category of this so-called dumb phones. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I, I was thinking that um, uh, someday, because you know everything that it once was popular is now called vintage, right? <laughs> and so, uh, uh, but one day I probably will be carrying around an independent, you know, dumb phone or just a small phone in my pocket again, because my, mm. you know, <laughs> cause, uh, I need something that's more reliable than what's, you know, what my iPhone delivers. To, so. Cool. Since we're running out of time, I have one question which uh, I'm personally very interested in. So I'm a big fan of Blue Ocean Strategy. And when I read your book, it felt like very complimentary to me. Um, but I want to hear it from you yourself. Like, um, was it meant to be complimentary? Or how do you see these two concepts of category design and Blue Ocean Strategy play against uh, each other or off of each other? You know, we've heard that a lot. I, I, I wouldn't say that we were actually, um, there was no specific sort of foundation for um, where we built our notion for the category design discipline. We will tip our hats, though, to you name it, whether it be, 
you know, the, the, the great books like Good to Great, uh, Jeffrey Moore's work with The Chasm, uh, Recent Trout, uh, Blue Ocean, right? They're all sort of all in the same world of trying to pull the cover off of something that most people might not be able to see on their own and helping the world see that there's other things in play that might bring them to uh, a, a different way of focusing their efforts to build their companies and products. And so Blue Ocean is a great notion, right? Obviously, there's a lot of space out there that needs to be tackled. Um, we probably, if there was a combination of what we look at and they look at, you know, we're looking at the blue ocean of problems, you know, versus maybe products and companies, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but yeah, you could mention them. You could mention chasm. You could mention recent trout. You could mention, uh, we're huge fans of Clayton Christensen. Uh, all those things are sort of the legends that even Ogilvy <laughs> going back to, uh, even older school thoughts about advertising and uh, all that sort of blends together just to help these business entrepreneurs, uh, you know, increase their odds for success. Got it. Okay. So there was no conscious decision, but to me, it really felt like it's very complimentary. So yeah, uh, I think it, 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 it definitely helped me in my thinking. Cool. Well, Dave, um, thanks a lot for your time. Um, just as a last question, maybe, uh, where can listeners find more about you, your company, and also about, uh, the book that we basically, <laughs> uh, discussed during this podcast, the play bigger. Well, um, uh, like, uh, unless it was sold out over the holidays, which is probably a good sign. So, uh, but I think we got it back on the shelf. So Amazon is a great place to go pick up play bigger, the book. And if you ever just want to chat, I always joke since the, you know, before the book came out at Play Bigger Advisors, that's our business, uh, the only thing, the reason we'd be talking would be potentially for a project. But since the book has come out, I always joke that I'm, we've become the world's leading help desk for category design. And we'll take any call any day. It's so much fun to hear from all the entrepreneurs and all the ideas. And uh, we welcome all those calls. So please just uh, feel free to reach out. Awesome. You know, it's just, it's easy. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And uh, we hope we can, you know, just shed a little uh, light in the world and help out any company or individual out there that's kind of thinking about a different approach for their business or their careers, you name it. Yeah. I might even call you. <laughs> oh yeah, please do. <laughs> so how do we reach you? Like, is there uh, an email or. Oh yeah. You can just get a hold of me anytime at, uh, at Dave at play bigger. Okay. Perfect. That's... And uh, pl Dave at playbigger.com. Exactly. My, uh, yeah. It's my email. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Dave, thanks a lot again for taking the time, shedding the light on this really interesting topic. Uh, and yeah, thanks again. All right. Thank you. So that's all in today's episode. If you are interested to learn more about category design, I really recommend this book, Play Bigger. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, um, just as Dave uh, said before. But in general, like if you're interested in learning more about business as a designer, uh, you know, to get more influence in a boardroom, to convince non-designers about your ideas, uh, or just because you want to be better at launching products or maybe start your own venture one day, uh, have a look on beyondusers.com. Uh, so I'm organizing uh, the MBA. It's an MBA specifically for designers, and we cover only the knowledge that designers need to have and always talk about implications. Uh, so we look at business skills and then look at implications for design work. And, and the next intake actually launches in March 11th. So if you're interested, hurry up, uh, have a look on the website and you can apply right away. 
cool so that's all for today enjoy your day and hopefully um cool so that's all for today enjoy your day bye bye